Welcome to Wooden Teeth, a podcast about health, politics, and policy. I'm your host, Jake Williams. We're rolling out a series of interviews this month that I recorded at South by Southwest, and I thought it was appropriate to post this particular interview I did with Manya Chalinsky and Amanda Salmon this week, as the whole world is processing the tragic mass murder at the mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand. Manya and Amanda were in Austin to present on the emotional toll of mass violence, and I spoke with them about how to better understand mental trauma as a means to either recover ourselves or be supportive of others who are trying to recover. Manya Chalinsky is a survivor of the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing, who now speaks to people across the country about resiliency. Amanda Salmon is the CEO of the Better Lab, a venture that uses design to study and fix healthcare challenges, and she's also a trauma surgeon at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital, where she has dealt with the human consequences of physical violence and mental trauma. Before we get into that conversation, I want to say a quick word about Austin. Later, you'll hear me reference an attempted carjacking I witnessed while I was in that city, and I don't want to give you the wrong impression. My visit there earlier this month was my very first and actually exceeded my expectations. It's a lovely place. In fact, I want to give a shout out to the Quickie Picky. The Quickie Picky is a bar, restaurant, convenience store combo establishment, and it's amazing. I think every neighborhood needs a Quickie Picky. I love the concept. Okay, let's get to the conversation I had in a hotel lobby on the banks of the Colorado River in Austin with Manya Chalinsky and Amanda Salmon. Manya and Amanda, welcome. Thank you. So what brought you to the topic of mass violence? Why do you care? I care because I'm a survivor of mass violence. Um, I'm a survivor of the Boston Marathon bombing and found myself very, very angry after the bombing at the fact that the news media, my civic leaders weren't talking about the mental health impacts. I very thankfully walked away without physical injuries, but ended up developing post-traumatic stress disorder and was looking to hear my story and wasn't seeing it. And I got really angry about that. And that guess turned me into an activist, an advocate. And what are you advocating for? I'm advocating for more public awareness of the mental health impacts of violence, whether it's mass violence or not. Um, we don't talk about the mental health side, and that is very isolating when you are experiencing the distress after violence and after the trauma. Um, on top of all of the things that you're dealing with, you also feel like, or speaking for myself, I also felt like I must be the only one who's feeling this. Um, but it's absolutely normal to be distressed and traumatized after violence. And if we can help people understand that, we can help people take care of themselves and draw on their own natural coping skills to take care of themselves. And Amanda, how about you? Um, well, I'm a trauma surgeon, so I, uh, I bear witness to violence every day. And um, I take care of people who have been injured um, from violence. And while the Official definition of mass violence is three, three people, one event. I would say that in at least where I work, I feel like mass violence is a way of life for many members of my community. Um, as I said in our talk, it's, it's three people shot on your block in one week. It's losing three relatives in a year. It's living in fear from 3 a.m. to 3 p.m. and 3 a.m. again. It's, it's, it's massive and it's real. And um, 
not only do we as, as trauma care providers have to figure out how to deal with it and how to handle it, but we also have to figure out how to destigmatize the non-physical injuries and the emotional toll that this takes on, on our patients and our communities. This morning, I witnessed an incident of violence. I um, was walking across the street here in Austin. It was about 7 a.m. Uh, on my way to breakfast, I heard um, the screech of brakes from a car, uh, which caused me to look up, and I saw a man with a gun uh, attempting to carjack this car at 7 o'clock in the morning. And next thing I know, the woman jams on the gas, the guy jumps out of the way, she goes a block and screeches to, screeches to another halt. She's seen that the, that the gunman has ran away. And even though a shot wasn't fired, I was thinking about that woman and what, what her experience is going to be like after something like that. Uh, what can someone like that expect to experience now? And how can, is there any way to prepare oneself to put oneself in a position of greatest likelihood to recover? So after an event like that, our bodies are actually physically responding when something like that happens, right? Your adrenaline is pumping, um, your system is kind of shutting down so that you can focus on what's happening to try to figure out what you need to do, whether it's fight or flight, for example. And so you are having physiological responses and then your body's sort of recovering from those and that can result in sleeplessness, nightmares, remembering the event, um, having frightening thoughts, um, feeling a feeling of grief. You can feel guilt for surviving after something like that. Um, I know in, in my own experience, I had a very difficult time taking care of myself, making meals, remembering to do the things I needed to do. Um, and it is quite normal to experience this kind of distress after something like that. It's a very frightening experience. And it's quite probable for most people that you will heal without needing any kind of formal mental health intervention. Um, I know somebody who says that time, talk, and tears is what it takes to recover from something like this. And um, can expect to feel distressed for, you know, a few days, a few weeks, depending on our own resiliency, right? We, we all are resilient. It's based on, you know, our own past experience with trauma, um, our childhood, our social support network, um, our socioeconomic status, how comfortable we feel in our community. Um, so all of those things help us build our own coping skills, right? And that's what any kind of support we can get helps us draw on our own coping skills and helps us know that it's natural to feel that way. And okay, I'm, now I'm just gonna do what I need to do to take care of myself. This is a question for Amanda. I've always wondered, has evolution prepared us for violent incidents like this? Because I'm sure through most of human history, we were dealing with more frequent mortal circumstances. Um, and it's only been relatively recently that humans have experienced um, a, a high amount, I will say, a, a, of safety, uh, aside from these regrettable incidents of mass violence that we're talking about today. But is there something within us that has prepared us in any way to deal with these situations and the resulting trauma? Oh, wow. That's a tough question. Um, you know, I think <clears throat> if you think evolutionarily, if you think back to cavemen um, and our 4 4 forefathers, we were built to 
outrun lions and and beasts. So we have a fight or flight response, as Manya said, um, and we could run away, and we still have that. I think um, I think the problem in some communities is that it's constant, and I don't think the body can handle that sort of repetitive stress of not only fearing for your safety, but fearing for um, the health of your family, the ability to keep a roof over your head, ability to keep a job, how to care for your children. I think that chronic stress, um, the body wasn't prepared for. We, we were evolutionary built to outrun a lion and recover. And I think the other stresses, the life stressors, the social stressors, um, I, I don't think we were built for that. And I think that's why we see um, the rates of chronic disease and illness that we have today. So your experience in practicing medicine is what led you to tackle this issue. Was there a breaking point for you or uh, a precipice that you crossed? Or is it just the accumulation of your experience over time in the ER? I'll tell you how this came about for me. I was, um, I told the story last year at South by Southwest. I was um, standing at the coffee cart in front of our hospital. I had had a baby six months earlier. I was just starting to feel like I was getting back to being normal. I had my pumping bag on one shoulder and my heavy bag with my laptop in the other. And I'm standing there about to order my coffee. <clears throat> and uh, I hear this car screech around the corner. And it screeches past me and makes a right to the old emergency room. And my spidey sense went off. I'm actually getting goosebumps right now. And I was like, something's wrong. They're going to the wrong place. So I started walking. I just left. I don't even, I think I left my credit card on the counter. I just started walking. And then I picked up my pace a little bit. And then I heard the screaming. And then I started running. And I saw, I think, our nurse manager on the side of the street. And I sort of threw my bags at her. And I ran over there. And um, the person had been shot. And the friends and family were bringing this individual in. And, um, you know, the circumstances, I won't go into all the details, but it ended up, you know, in my pencil skirt and my wedge heels, like they're doing CPR on the ground, like with fam friends and family around. And um, that for me was completely out of context. Um, I take care of people in a sterile environment. Our paramedics and first responders have brought these people in from their native habitat where they're human and they bring them into the trauma bay where we can sort of go into autopilot. And only after the fact do we go talk to the family and have to really think about the humanity and the, and the human that was lost or, you know, gravely injured. And the, that situation, the out of context, doing it, you know, with family around, I, I struggled with that for a while. I would think about it. I would, you know, um, every time I sort of walked by that area, I would look over there. And I think it made me realize how hard this job is, how hard those like the telling another family member that their loved one has died, seeing this mass violence, how hard that is. And that's when I got interested in sort of um, trying to take a design lens to the, the physical and emotional toll of violence. How can we make it easier for providers to provide this care and then go home to their own families and function? And how can we make it easier for our patients to continue to, to, to recover both mentally and physically? So healthcare providers like you have become more involved in this issue of gun violence and its emotional toll. And you've also been told uh, by some to stay in your lane. And as a response, there has been a movement called This Is Our Lane that you've been involved with. Can you tell us more about it? 
You know, as a provider, we don't get political. At least I haven't. I felt it's not my place. I'm here to provide care. I don't care your, I, I will provide care for anybody. I don't care what, what the circumstances are, you know, what your racial, ethnic background is, what your priorities are, what po political pol party you're part of. It's just not my place, right? I need to be agnostic. And so I've stayed, you know, I, that's not been my, um, I've never wanted to be political, but um, the the telling physicians to quote stay in their lane and that we don't know anything about gun violence was insulting. I was insulting because we literally grieve, we cry over it, we we devastate families regularly. I mean, to to tell a person who has to walk into a room, look a mother in the eye, and say your son or daughter is dead, that it's not our business, is um, I felt. I felt was very sort of misinformed and disrespectful of the, the incredibly hard work that first responders, nurses, doctors, like all types of providers in ev from, from the minute it happens to the emotional recovery they go through, have to go through. It's challenging. And Manya, um, you spoke about your individual experience as a survivor of the Boston Marathon bombing. Um, can you describe what life was like in your interaction with your friends and loved ones after that incident? And what, if anything, can people learn about your experience uh, to help people who know somebody who's gone through trauma get through it better? After the bombing, I think it's fair to say that I didn't really understand how it was impacting me, even as I was dealing with all of the distress and all of the frightening symptoms and intrusive thoughts, I didn't necessarily understand what was happening to me. Um, I kept it quiet for the most part from family and friends, as quiet as I could. I certainly was not myself and people did recognize that. My friends in particular, um, were very supportive and I think this is instructive for anybody whose family or friends have suffered this. The support that you offer doesn't have to be complex. I had one day where I was sitting at a restaurant with one of my dearest friends in the whole world and a good percentage of the time that we were in that restaurant, I was sobbing, just flat out. She never questioned what was happening. She never said, don't cry, everything will be okay. Um, she kind of shooed the waiter away when he came over to make sure I was okay. And she just let me cry. And from my perspective, she never even looked around the room to see if anybody else cared what was happening. And I'm sure everybody did because I was not being subtle about it. She just let me cry it out. And then when it was done, she said, wow. You know, we were talking about this particular topic when you started crying. Is there, is there something about that that was particularly upsetting? And we were able to have the conversation. Um, I have a really good friend who's a neighbor. He knows that sirens are really triggering to me. There was a fire in a building a few blocks away, and multiple sirens came by. I can't see from my window what was happening. He knew I was going to be triggered by this. He got dressed, went outside, found out what was happening, and texted me to say, it's two blocks away, it's this building, there's this many fire trucks, this is what's happening. And that's it. Just simple awareness of what m might be happening to me and reaching out. 
to say, you know, and he never said anything like, I know you may be triggered. I know this is scary. I just want you to be okay. But just the simple act of letting me know what was going on, um, he knew that was going to make me feel better. So, you know, listening to somebody when they're talking, just letting them experience the feelings that they're feeling and understanding they don't necessarily know what they're going through and they don't necessarily know what they need. They just need to know that you're there for them. And those were small moments that I've never forgotten because they were so meaningful in helping, just helping support me. What do we need to understand about the ripple effects of mass violence? Because obviously there's the immediate victim of the violence that incurs physical injury. There are the people that witness it. Uh, there are the people who are the friends and, and the loved ones, or both the people who are harmed uh, physically, directly, as well as the mental trauma. How, where does this end and what do we do? How do we understand this? Well, I like that you used ripple effect because when I do presentations, I actually have a target and sort of look at, let's look at the circles of people who are impacted by this. I don't know actually where it ends, what the, the end person from, from one person who's experienced violence directly, um, but it absolutely does impact family and friends and they're traumatized on a certain level by knowing their loved one was part of this, for example. Um, and are less likely to be considered when you're thinking about who is impacted by violence. Um, we're more likely to think about the people who are physically injured and maybe the witnesses who were there. But it really does ripple out into the community. And, you know, as Amanda was talking about, if you're in a community where you've experienced multiple amounts of violence and multiple violent events over time, that just builds upon their experience. Yeah, <clears throat> we, were, we, we actually met a, a teacher from uh, Charlottesville, Virginia uh, yesterday after our talk, and he, he teaches middle school, and he said, how do we change the dialogue for our middle schoolers who constantly hear about what happened in our beautiful city? And, you know, we, we had discussed the fact that we have children, children now doing, like, active shooter drills. I mean, I grew up doing earthquake drills, which was, like, sort of scary, but you also got to put together, like, a cool pack of food that you ate at the end of the year, but... Active shooter drills, there's, I mean, how do you start? The ripple effect is that we have to talk to our five and six-year-olds about mass violence. Um, and, and I can't even begin to describe or even think about what we need to say to the children living in certain communities where mass violence is a way of life. Yeah, uh, thinking personally about the, the ripple effects um, and, and children, my kids ask all the time uh, about the possibility of, you know, mass violence or, or getting shot. And we live a really privileged life in a nice neighborhood. Um, but I have to be honest with them about, you know, the possibility of these things happening because of the widespread presence of guns. Um, and they, you know, they hear things on the news, they hear stories. Maybe they'll overhear me telling this story about the attempted carjacking in Austin that I told you guys, uh, I'll try to keep that one away from them. But even I have experienced an instance of violence uh, recently, in uh, 2016, in our office building, uh, a man entered the building. We found out later he was in, in pursuit of his estranged wife. He shot her, and she died the next day from her wounds. He committed suicide in the building. At the time, nobody knew what was going on. They just heard shots and screams, including myself. We fled the building um, and found out about the details later. And so, even though someone like me, who again lives a pretty privileged life, life, violence 
uh, really doesn't have any bounds sometimes with respect to those sort of circumstances, even though for sure there are communities in which violence occurs multiple times a day. And, and thinking about that, that um, incident, I, I've dealt with it pretty well. Um, I know some people in my building went to counseling and they're kind of still, still dealing with it. But even me, when I, for example, hear certain sounds in the building, I involuntarily think back to that day. My, I can feel my brain searching for like, is this, is this happening again? Even though I know it's not, it's, I can't, it's impossible to help. And you know, I try to relay that to, to people who say something to the effect of like, why don't you just, why can't people just get over it, man? Like after something happens to you and, and you know, they don't understand why you can't get over it. And what I try to describe is that sometimes it, it's, it's almost like a more physical involuntary reaction than any sort of derangement that you might think I have in my head about it. I had people say to me, essentially, why aren't you over it yet? And I think one of the answers to the larger question of how do we help people deal with this is normalizing the mental health impacts of violence, helping people understand that it is absolutely normal to be distressed. So you don't feel isolated and you don't feel as if, oh, there's just something wrong with me. That was lo very largely my experience, feeling as if there's just something wrong with me that I can't get over it because I didn't realize this was something normal after experiencing violence. If we can help people understand that it's normal, we can help them draw on their own natural coping skills. Most people don't seek out or need formal mental health treatment after something like this. Um, so I think the most important thing is helping people understand that it's normal. The, the more we can get that message out to everybody, the better it's going to be. The fewer people who are going to say, how come you just can't get over it? And it's completely normal to hear a loud noise after being at a bombing or a shooting and think, wait, what is that? Because we've just had a different kind of experience than other people. And you know, our resiliency is just based on so many of these experiences. And um, maybe the next time it really does happen, you're gonna be able to process it a little bit more quickly than somebody else because you've already done it. Uh, I was just gonna say, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's protective to have a physiologic response when you hear uh, a noise that once represented fear. I mean, if you go back to what we were talking about earlier, of like evolution, that's how, that's how man protected themselves is they recognize the sound of a tiger sneaking up behind them and then they had that physiologic fight or flight response so our body is doing what it had to do millions of years ago to protect ourselves it, it's it's its own protective mechanism um but it's just um it's just no longer relevant and so now these physiologic responses these you know new neuronal mappings that immediately respond when you hear that boom or that crash um just cause emotional distress because it's not a tiger sneaking up behind you. It's not another shooter. So, unfortunately, we're living in an era where there are a lot of acts of mass violence. And we've become somewhat used to it, almost. And th there's um, an evolving media and community response to these things. How should we respond as a community 
and how should the media respond in the most helpful and responsible way to these types of incidents? From where I sit, I want to change the story that we're telling after these violent events. I want the story to be more inclusive of the mental health impacts and the emotional side. I think for members of the community and family and friends, it's important to be encouraging and supportive. Um, but if you're going to be posting on social media that you are sad that something happened or frightened that something happened, also post encouraging messages. Post, um, su post your support. Post resources that you know could be helpful to somebody experiencing this. For the media in particular, I would like to see more coverage of the mental health side and more sharing of resources. There, the mental health community, the public health community, the victim services community, they all have the resources and when something like this happens, they're ready to deal with it. And as a regular member of the public, you don't necessarily see that. So if Everybody could work together, our civic leaders, the media, all of these other communities, to get those resources out there, to put them up on the news and share that these are, um, you know, the National Center for PTSD, for example, local resources, help people understand this, you may feel this way, and here are some resources to help you. Well, you both shared a lot of lessons and resources about how to deal with this, but are there questions that remain scientifically that we need to study to, to, to know more? I mean, there are so many questions. We, um, we have a desperate need to uh, allocate more resources and more time to studying violence. And it has been um, historically difficult for us. Um, federal funding is minimal, um, to say the least, for violence, um, particularly around gun violence. And my colleagues who are really on the leading edge of this, people like Rochelle Dicker um, and Katrine Juilliard, who started the wraparound program at, at my hospital, um, have been incredibly creative and resilient in their own right to be able to push this research forward. And so, you know, as a medical community, we can't fix what we can't study and can't understand. And uh, so, yes, I think we need to refocus from how to prevent it in the first place to how to best manage and treat it if and when it does happen. Manya Chulinski, Amanda Salmon, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. There it is. Thanks again to Manya Chulinski and Amanda Salmon. If this is a topical realm that interests you, I'd also suggest going back and listening to the episode we did on fear as a public health issue. Next week, we're going to talk about one of the most important political issues that we as a country will be dealing with over these next couple of years. So be sure to tune in for that one. I'll see you then.